Yeah, it's really good to see you all uh, this morning. Um, thank you for making it along in person, those of you in the building, but also want to remember there's a few watching us online. Last I checked, there were 25 devices accessing us live. So if that's you, you're, uh, well, it's great to have you with us in spirit, if not, uh, if not physically. And uh, if you're watching the recording a bit later on, uh, really, God bless you too. I hope that this service is, is helping you. Uh, engage with God and draw near to him. Now, um, it was really good to hear from Teddy and Diddy again. And um, I particularly loved that story of uh, Ukrainians and Russians being reconciled in the church, even while all that is going on is going on. It's a great gospel picture, that is. Um, we as a church do give uh, a chunk of cash each year to, uh, to support this excellent work. Um, but if you wanted to give something personally this morning, um, then if you take one of the white envelopes that are scattered around and put a gift in there, mark it for Sophia Baptist Church and put it in the letterbox on the way out, we'll make sure that that gets where it needs to go to support this amazing work. Um, and we're thrilled to be able to partner with you, really. I mean, the privilege is all ours. When I think of this story of David being chosen over his brothers, I reckon I've got something deeply imprinted in my mind from probably Sunday school, when I, you know, before, a memory of something before I can actually consciously remember. Because I've got a very vivid image in my mind of David. He's about five foot tall, and, um, and he doesn't look very physically sort of strong or impressive. Obviously, I, I reckon some image must have been passed around or shown to me when I was a kid. And um, although the scripture actually speaks positively of David's appearance, it says he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. In some previous translation, it described him as ruddy, which I can remember thinking was very risque when I was a kid using words like that, but I think it was with a different meaning. And, um, uh, and, and and although it says that about him, obviously in the Sunday school class that I can't actually remember but that is lingering in my, my consciousness, they were making a big play out of the fact that, that God um, chose David rather than the very impressive physical specimens his older brothers were, and they made much of that and perhaps extended it from what the Bible actually says. But we're going to spend a few minutes now thinking about who God chooses, why he chooses them, what God wants us to be doing for him, that kind of stuff. But before we begin this series on the heart of David, and, and we, we called it that because in the scriptures we're told that David was a man after God's own heart, we're going to spend the next six weeks just looking into David's heart, looking into some of the episodes of his life and and what they mean, really, and, and what God was drawn to in David. Before we begin, we're going to have a bit of background. So, really, the story of David um, begins right at the end of the book of Judges. The book of Judges uh, recounts a period in Israel's history when their leadership was much more informal. They didn't have a king. And what tended to happen was that the nation went badly, and then someone would emerge, a sort of charismatic leader, possibly by virtue of their own charismatic uh, force of charisma, or possibly because they were a mighty warrior, or both, they would come to the fore, and while there was a godly person leading the country like that, things seemed to go well. 
And this cycle goes over and over in Judges that then they would die or disappear from the scene and then everything would go badly. And uh, it says at the end of the book of Judges that essentially there was a state of anarchy. It says there was no king in the land. It's the last verse in Judges. And so everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Sometimes we can, uh, in our culture, think of leadership as a sort of necessary evil. We, we tend to have a bit of an anti-authoritarian streak in the West. Um, but actually, good leadership is a gift. The Bible is quite clear about that throughout. And, uh, and the absence of good leadership is a curse for a country. So, so there seemed there to be a suggestion right at the end of the book of Judges that a king would be a good thing. And then we come immediately to the book of Ruth, which if you were here last week, Kang San was speaking on, which is just this lovely tale of a family and the way in which God works in this family despite very difficult circumstances. But then right at the end of the book of Ruth, the, the, the angle of the lens going right into a family, it comes right back out to the whole nation of Israel and says, because of the faithfulness of this family, um, were the progenitors of God's king, who is to come, David. And uh, then we come into the book of Samuel, where we find out about Samuel, who is essentially another judge. He's a prophet that emerges to lead the country. And in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, there's a request for a king. The people come to Samuel and say, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king. Now, whether it's because they want the king for the wrong reasons, because they want to be like other nations, when God's called the, the Israelites to be different or whether it's because the Bible is just ambiguous about kingship, can't be certain. But Samuel's not altogether impressed by their desire to have a king, and he warns them that if they have a king, there will be a downside to that, that they'll be oppressed by that king, and the king will exploit them. Nevertheless, they go ahead and have a king, and the first king, King Saul, is everything a king should be. He is tall, he is a warrior, he is powerful, he's assertive, Unfortunately, he's also got an insecure streak, if you read the story. And when you put insecure people into leadership, bad things start to happen almost immediately. The leadership starts to become more about them than it is about the role of leadership. And it all ends terribly badly. And essentially, Samuel has to convey to Saul, from the Lord, God's judgment, to say to Saul, it's over for you. None of your children will be kings. Your house has come to an end. And that's when we get to this chapter. Now, when, um, when, Dave, when Samuel conveys this message to Saul, he says to Saul, but God has chosen someone, a man after his own heart, to be king, and that man will replace you as king. That's in 1 Samuel 13. And much later in the book of Acts in the New Testament, um, the Apostle Paul in preaching to Jewish, uh, a Jewish congregation about Jesus says, reflects back and says David was this man, a man after God's own heart. Now the first question to ask then is why? I mean that's quite a thing to say isn't it, that, that someone was a man after God's own heart. And you might then anticipate that David's going to be perfect, but he is very far from perfect. He himself has weaknesses in his character, and um, if you read the Psalms, you can, many of which he wrote, you can only draw the conclusion that he was prone to melancholia, shall we say. He, he can be very melancholic. 
Um, at times he can get very angry and pray that God would do all sorts of terrible things to his enemies. And one particular episode in his life, he uses his position of uh, power to cover up something he did wrong and then ultimately has someone in his army essentially murdered to cover up his wrongdoing. Well, we're going to look at all of this and, and really ask the question, what was it about David that God was so impressed with? Or that, that said that his, who he was resonated with God despite David's many weaknesses and failures? Well, that's where we're going over the next few weeks. As we look at this passage, the first thing that strikes me in the first six verses is Samuel's unimpressive behaviour. Um, Samuel is asked to go and, um, and anoint a new king. And the first thing he says, despite the fact he's been uh, God's man for a long time and God has done all sorts of amazing things to him, the first thing he says to God is, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. Well, nice to know that self-interest isn't too much of an issue for you, Samuel. Um, the interesting thing is that rather than rebuke him, God basically colludes with him to concoct a whole story about what he's doing that is not actually what he was going there for. Um, and I, I don't know what to make of it, really, except to say that at times, God condescends to our weaknesses. I think that's the only thing I can say. It's not particularly impressive. But anyway, Samuel arrives and he gets set to choose which of Jesse's sons will be uh, king. And he sees Eliab, and you know the story, he sees the next one, the next one, and the Lord keeps saying to him, no, it's not, not this one. But there's this very important verse, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. That's Eliab. The Lord does not look at things people look at, People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Here are a few leaders who've been quite significant, I think. Abraham Lincoln probably does conform to the image of a standard image of a leader that some of us might have. He's tall. Um, I'm not sure if you'd say handsome or not. I'll leave others to decide. Dominant, sort of strong character. Then you've got Mahatma Gandhi, who probably doesn't conform in some respects, very short, I believe, and, and not particularly physically impressive looking. Nelson Mandela, three very significant leaders. I was thinking about, it's obviously uh, hard, harder in some respects, even today, for women to rise to positions of leadership, but it, it, it's often struck me that if you think back on the history of the English monarchy, the three most significant monarchs, I, I was going to say arguably, I'm not really sure it is arguable, they're all the women. There's only been about five, five women on the throne and three of them are arguably the three most significant ones. I wonder what comes into your mind when you see, think of a leader. Well, clearly Samuel was impressed by height and appearance, but God isn't particularly. I, I read some research not, not all that long ago that... Um, Democracies tend to vote in people who are taller than average. They, in, in Britain, we almost never, and certainly during my lifetime, have never voted in a bald leader. It's outrageous, isn't it? I mean, I'm 
bit un unhappy about that. Um, I can't even think of one with a receding hairline. They've all got a full head of hair. Um, they, uh, we, there is good, good uh, evidence to show that um, we tend to vote in physically, on the whole, physically more attractive people, although you'll have to be the judge about the present incumbent. <laughs> There's no doubt, actually, that when we encounter people for the first time, they've done experiments that show that if somebody's good-looking, we tend to trust them more. We make interesting judgments. Years ago, I read a book called Entertaining Ourselves to Death by a man called Neil Postman. It's a very interesting book. He, he was really arguing, following the advent of television, so in that sense, it's quite old, because obviously we've got much more, we've had lots more media uh, that's come about since television, but he said television created in politics the triumph of the image. It all became about the image. And he contrasted how 50 years before the advent of television, people would go to political gatherings in which very complex political arguments would be debated. And he contrasted that with the election which Ronald Reagan won in the States. So it was a long time ago in which he said Reagan, it was universally agreed, won because he performed well on television. And in particular, it went down well that he pulled off a couple of really amusing jokes. What do we judge on? It's very interesting in democracies, because you can do the data. Look at who democracies tend to elect. There are consistent themes, I think. But, um, but here we have the story of David. And David was not the person that even a godly man like Samuel would have chosen. Now, when we read this story in God's word, it's not just a history lesson about who God chose once, I, I feel, particularly when you think about Paul writing to the Corinthians and talking to them about the fact that they were not the strong and the wise when God chose them, I think we're meant to see ourselves in this story. We're meant to identify with David in this narrative. Now, it might be in church this morning, there's one or two people who think, well, actually, I think I am quite impressive. I am the sort of person who should be in leadership. I think the message of the whole gospel is if that's who you're like, you'll be no use to God until your pride is humbled. God has no interest in the pride of human beings. But if you look at the story of David and think, well, I'm not the first person that should be chosen for prominence, you are promising material. And what this teaches is that God chooses in a different way to the way the world chooses. If you were the head of a political party, maybe you wouldn't be rising to being prime minister. Maybe you wouldn't fit with people's expectations but God looks at you in an entirely different way. And the scriptures clearly indicate that you have been chosen. God, before the creation of the world, had you in mind. He looked upon you in love, sent his son to redeem you at great personal cost. He has his name written on the palms of his hands. 
And you may think, well, if God knows everything about me, I'm pretty unpromising material. This story reminds us that whether other people regard you as promising material, and whether even if you do, is secondary. What's important is God's assessment. And he can work with unpromising material. The thing he doesn't find it easy to work with is people of pride. All right, so um, what does Samuel do? He takes the horn of oil and he anoints David. Perhaps we could have the, the, the slide up that shows, uh, shows some oil being poured out as an image for us. Pours that oil on David, but actually the oil is irrelevant. The oil is a picture of the reality of what has happened. That when the prophet Samuel anoints David, God's spirit comes on David, it says. From that day forward, the spirit of God came upon him so that he could do all that God was calling him to do. So for a few moments, some reflection. The, um, the New Testament picks up this theme of God choosing people who are not particularly promising in worldly terms. Uh, and in truth, if we're honest about ourselves, and we, we believe what the Bible says, none of us, you know, even, even if we are physically impressive, when, when we start to look inside at the motives of our heart, at our shortcomings and our fears, our judgmentalism, all the mean stuff that goes on in there sometimes, if we're honest about that stuff, who on earth are we that God would use us? Who on earth are we that God would even want to have anything to do with us? But the message of the New Testament again and again is that God chooses men and women, irrespective of, uh, of all the skills they might have. God can give you all the skills he wants you to have. That's, that's easy for him. He chooses us because he loves us. He, he can make very weak things strong for him. He can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. He is capable of using you, not just making you useful for this time, but making you useful for eternal things. Paul says to the Corinthians who are getting this church that's getting obsessed with power and status and what gifts they have and who's more important and which of the big leaders in the early church they follow and they're all falling out with each other. He says, remember what you were before you, you came into the church. Not many of you were wise, he says. Not many of you were strong. God takes the weak things of this world to shame the strong. Saul looked the part of a king. But for all his failings, David was the king that God had chosen, a man after his own heart. Maybe you do or you don't look like the epitome of a leader or the epitome of a useful person. But actually it's irrelevant. If you will come before God in humility, he'll make you useful. He chose you in Christ, 
even before the world was created, he knew you. You are incredibly precious to him, yes. But he's not only choosing you because he loves you, he's choosing you because he wants to make you useful. He has something for you to do. That message is right through the New Testament. That when God comes into somebody's life, just as when the Spirit came on David, and from that day forward, he starts to exhibit all the qualities of somebody uh, destined for greatness. When God's Spirit comes upon you, he empowers you. Well, three things really happen when God's Spirit comes upon somebody. Firstly, their character starts to get cleaned up. It's a process. Secondly, they are brought into the family of God and they experience the love of God as their father, but also that love then goes out horizontally and they begin to feel part of the fellowship and they begin to look at others in the church as their brothers and sisters. And then thirdly, starts to make us useful. People start, God lays on our heart things that he wants us to do. And this is really where I want to leave you today. God not only loves you, he certainly does. In Christ he has chosen you. He knew you before he made a thing in the world. He knew how he would draw you to himself. But he also has things for you to do. He doesn't just want you to sit as an object of his grace. Yes, he wants you to sit as an object of his grace, but he then wants you to seek him for what it is you're to do. Amazing things happen in the lives of Christians. Ordinary people start doing extraordinary things. God has chosen you, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. He has chosen you to lavish on you his love, and he has chosen you to make you useful for him. His spirit is on you, so that you'd know you're part of the family, so that he would t make you more and more like Christ, but also so that you would go and do his will in this world. God bless you.